Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 25th, 2015, and we are recording this live at the Hoover Institution on the campus of Stanford University. My guests today are Leo Hanian, John Cochran, and Arnold Kling. Gentlemen, welcome back to EconTalk. This is part of a Hoover conference on the 800th birthday of Magna Carta. Our topic for today is the next 800 years, or maybe a little less. And I would remind listeners who are interested, go back to the Nicholas Vincent episode of a little while back. We'll put a link up to it where you can get some background on the Magna Carta. And it's in the last 800 years, we're going to try to look forward today at this session. We're going to talk about the future of freedom, democracy, and prosperity. Certainly the spread of freedom and the restraints on political power that have emerged over the last 800 years since Magna Carta have something to do with the prosperity and freedom we've enjoyed over that time period. What this session is about is what might be the future of prosperity and the political constraints in that time, particularly in the United States. I've asked each of the three participants to make a brief set of observations to get us started. Then I will moderate a conversation between them. We're going to start with Leo Hanian. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Russ. Um, so in terms of thinking about economic freedom and prosperity, I'm going to begin by noting that a number of economists over the last 30 years, including Gary Becker and Milton Friedman, who were Hoover Fellows, uh, worked on trying to quantify what economic freedom is and, and try to connect that with prosperity. And Becker and Friedman's work has been updated and continued over time. There's a number of economists who continue to measure economic freedom and quantify that. Um, and the purpose of this is to try to track um, how economic freedom changes over countries and over time. And these measures typically are based on the size of government, regulatory, bur- regulatory burdens, the opportunity to trade with other countries, protection of property rights, and the conduct of monetary policy. Now, most economists who try to measure economic freedom have the U.S. typically among the top three uh, countries or regions uh, as recently as 2000. Um, so both Cato and Heritage rank the U.S. third behind Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, today, both Cato and Heritage rank the U.S. around 13th or 14th in a category of countries that's no longer free but is considered mostly free. And this decline in the U.S.'s ranking is really the result of an expansion of government's role in the economy, which includes higher spending and more regulation, uh, and subsidies for large enterprises. Um, Now, what I'm going to focus my talk on is that a lot of this expansion of government was advertised by policymakers as being necessary to restore economic growth and the economy back to trend. But these changes have coincided with the worsening of the U.S. economy. So today, real GDP per capita is about 12% below trend. That's about $2 trillion. Part of this shortfall is because employment is about 5.5 million jobs below the level that would prevail if employment as a share of the population returned to its pre-recession level. Now, the large, this large efficiency in jobs has been discussed by a lot of people, but what's perhaps more troublesome in my mind is that productivity, which is the other part of economic growth, 
is way below trend. Um, to illustrate that, business sector labor productivity is growing at an average rate of about 0.7% per year in the last five years compared to a long-run average of 2.5% per year. Uh, total factor productivity growth in the business sector is also growing about 0.7% per year. And this, def- what I'll call a deficiency of productivity growth, is really unprecedented in the history of the U.S., and it's occurred during a period in which the rate of business startups has dropped considerably. Um, the startup rate of new businesses has declined about 20% since 2009. And I make a series of observations that, that suggest to me that this low rate of new business formation is a major negative factor for productivity growth and economic growth. Um, and there are really two points I'm going to make here. One is about the life cycle of businesses and organizations, and the other is about who does innovation. Um, so a lot of important innovations historically have come from startups and very young businesses. Ranges from the telegraph and telephone, railroad, airplane, autos, air conditioning, um, many applications of the Internet, wireless communication. Um, and maybe, you know, not surprisingly, new business formation is critical for job creation. Um, if one takes away, just mechanically takes away the job creation done by startups, then on an average year, not during recession, just an average year, the U.S. economy typically experiences net job loss. So another way of saying that is large incumbents such as GM, IBM, AT&T, they employ a lot of people, but on average those organizations shrink over time. Um, this is the only country that's had persistent economic growth for two centuries, and the reason is because new businesses ultimately edge out old businesses. Um, Now, this decline in the startup rate has occurred during a time in which economic policy is fostered promoting and protecting large incumbent enterprises, Um, and it's coincided with regulations that, that in my mind, have more broadly raised the costs of of starting and growing businesses. So since 2008, policies have been increasingly focused on propping up large, old establishments that are deemed too big to fail. This includes well-known bailouts of autos and financial intermediaries. But this also includes a continuation of subsidies that benefit politically connected groups. This, there's about $20 billion each year in agricultural subsidies. Um, many of these date back to the New Deal in the 1930s. These were originally intended for small farmers, though today most agricultural subsidies are paid out to large corporations that bear little resemblance to the fam- family farmers of, uh, of yesteryear. We have about $30 billion of energy subsidies. Um, my favorite one is subsidies to, uh, to wind power. Subsidies to wind power can be sufficiently large that on some occasions, when there's a lot of wind, wind farms actually can make money by paying electricity producers to take their wind power. Um, now, typically about half of business subsidies are paid out to just four industries, which are finance, utilities, communications, and energy. And not surprisingly, these industries are among the biggest government lobbyists. Now, lobbying and subsidies, I think in my mind, highlights the tension of a free society we're here talking about today. Um, Free societies create prosperity, which creates wealth, and this in turn creates incentives for groups to try to appropriate that wealth. Now, lobbying has been interpreted in various court rulings as constitutionally protected free speech and as a method of petitioning government for the redress of grievances. So ironically, the foundations of freedom that create a favorable environment for individuals and organizations to invest and produce provide opportunities for others to extract returns from those investments and outputs. Now, 
some of the some of the regulations we see today, in my view, are perhaps even more inefficient than ones we've seen in previous years. Um, there's Dodd-Frank in the financial sector, which is a unique piece of legislation. It doesn't provide rules directed at individuals or organizations, which is the intent of legislation. Rather, it's a directive for bureaucrats to create more bureaucracies without particularly specific limits. Take, for example, the Consumer Protection Bureau within Dodd-Frank. The Consumer Protection Bureau gives regulators the right to punish financial firms who engage in, quote, abusive practices, unquote. But my understanding is that abusive practice has no legal definition, which means the term abusive is whatever regulators want it to mean. Consumer Protection Bureau also can choose which financial products can be offered and to whom and at what price. Now, you might think that Dodd-Frank only pertains to financial issues. That's certainly what I thought when I, when I read about Dodd-Frank. But Dodd-Frank also has a provision that requires manufacturers who use minerals from in and around the Congo to provide SEC regulators with information on the acquisition of these minerals and, in fact, on their entire supply chain. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates that this will affect over 100,000 businesses, and the National Association of Manufacturers estimates compliance will cost $9 billion to $16 billion. Now, certainly no one knew what what Dodd-Frank would be when it was passed. Three years after it was passed, we still didn't know what Dodd-Frank would be because more than half of Dodd-Frank remained unwritten. Today, after nearly five years, there's still more to know about Dodd-Frank as it remains unfinished. What impact is Dodd-Frank having? I'm going to cite two studies, one done by survey data from the New York Fed that's showing a significant impact on small businesses. This includes tighter lending restrictions, less competition among lenders, and a decline in the number of community banks, which are banks with less than $10 billion in assets, and these are the banks that disproportionately lend to small business. Another recent study found that the decline in community banking accelerated considerably in the last few years, reflecting economies of scale and managing new regulation associated with Dodd-Frank. Uh, small Business Administration uh, says that lending to small businesses has declined by about 20% to, since 2008, which was, of course, the year of the Great Recession. And in 2013, only one new bank entered the banking industry. So we look at the outcome of Dodd-Frank, declining competition, fewer banks, lack of entry, higher costs, regulators with broad mandates who make vague and far-reaching rules. This represents a sharp departure from the principles of clear and specific limits on government. Another area that I'm going to talk about just briefly is labor market restrictions. So recently... Private sector unionization has declined over time. Several states, including Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana, have become right-to-work states. Uh, I'm going to call this individuals, individuals wanting more choice in labor markets, but some governments are fighting back. So we see minimum wage targets of $15 an hour in L.A., Seattle, and other cities. And these are d- defined as living wage laws. And living wage laws often subsidize unions, as union shops are often exempt from living wage regulations. Union exemptions are rarely discussed when living wage legislation is presented. Uh, This includes the National Labor Relations Board that attempted to block Boeing's attempt to expand production in South Carolina. It includes California's decision last week to define Uber drivers as employees rather than as independent contractors. It includes New York's decision of taxi enforcement agents seizing nearly 500 Uber cars over a six-week period for what they termed illegal street pickups. It includes a growing number of occupational licensing restrictions that impact nearly 30% of all occupations, including ones that I'm sure you're worried about, such as hair braiders, tour guides, horse massagers, 
interior decorators, and fortune tellers. I'd like to see the fortune teller licensing exam. <laughs> um, all of the themes that, I'm dis that I've discussed here are in Milton Friedman's wonderful 1962 book, Capitalism and Freedom. Friedman argued that freedom and prosperity go hand in hand and that society must constantly limit government's natural inclination to grow, expand, and overreach. This suggests that the future course of economic freedom, democracy, and economic growth depends on whether we continue with current policies or whether we choose to expand freedom, which is what we did as a country beginning in the late 1970s. Um, I remain optimistic if for no other reason the U.S. has always found a way to do this, but I think what this suggests is that understanding the political forces the lead to whether coalitions can be formed that prefer this outcome becomes the most important issue regarding future U.S. economic growth and economic freedom. Arnold Klein, <clears throat> after that cheerful, uh, there was a note of optimism there at the end. Yeah. Lee, I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, albeit a brief one, uh, Arnold. Okay. Uh, well, thanks to the Hoover Institution for inviting me to speak. The topic is the future of freedom, democracy, and prosperity. And we we're just talking about the license required for a fortune teller, and I, I wish I had one. Um, <laughs> but um, I, uh, th this topic was so imposing that I decided it was, it was beyond me, and I uh, decided to reread uh, North, Wallace, and Weingast, and kind of try to adapt that framework as best I can. And I'm not even the most qualified person in this room to adapt that framework. But um, I think of it as there are limited access orders and open access orders. And in a limited access order, you have a ruling coalition that has all the political rights and economic, economic opportunity in the, in the state, and uh, it's stable because the people in the ruling coalition are collecting the rents from having uh, the monopoly of economic opportunity and political rights, and everyone else is powerless to do anything about it. Uh, in an open access order, uh, everyone has uh, some economic access to economic opportunity and political rights. And one test of that is you can ask who can form an organization where the purpose of the organization is to compete against incumbent interests, political interests or economic interests. And in the limited access order, that's almost no one. You're not allowed to compete in an organized way against incumbent interests. And in an open access order, it's almost everyone. So that's kind of my take. And the... Um, the <clears throat> Transition from a limited access order to an open access order is quite difficult, uh, as we've found uh, in Iraq or in Egypt. And uh, part of the reason for that is that to get to an open access order, you need to build up a lot of layers of individual beliefs, cultural norms, uh, as well as formal institutions. So some of the things that I think Jim Caesar was kind of referring to, uh, the, the kind of cultural support. And the way I think of Magna Carta is as sort of part of that layer of cultural support. So it isn't so much what the document does in 1200, but what the cultural sort of reverence, if you will, of that document does 500 years later and beyond 
that helps underlie the open access order. So I'm going to be relative, I guess, the optimist in this session because uh, I think that as I read North Wallace and Weingast, I couldn't come up with good ways to destabilize or easy ways to destabilize an open access order. Uh, first of all, you have, by, kind of by definition, everyone having a stake in the system. And secondly, just to get to an open access order, you have to have all these layers of cultural support of individual norms, uh, cultural beliefs, and uh, formal institutions, and those pro those provide for stability. So I think you have to be uh, pretty brave to forecast that a, an open access order is going to sort of degenerate. Um, and, and I think the history is that open access orders have remained uh, quite stable. So, but let me just throw out one scenario uh, just to a possible pessimistic scenario, and that's based on the uh, chronic deficit spending and unfunded liabilities. Uh, at some point, when you've promised uh, to pay people benefits, and at the same time you've promised your bondholders that they're going to be repaid, and, you don't, and you're not going to have enough money to pay them, there's going to be a conflict. You know, we see that kind of conflict in Greece, and uh, you know, Greece can still find more other people's money, but uh, in the United States is too big to find enough other people's money. So one sort of maybe you know, fictional type scenario would be that um, you would get a sudden sovereign debt crisis in the United States that would take place in an environment where the political feelings are frayed, there's a lot of controversy, people no longer see the legislators and the executive as having legitimacy for solving their problems, they take to the streets, there's fighting, there's violence, and at that point the uh, people are ready to turn to some kind of dictator to resolve the violence. So that's that's kind of a you know a fictional scenario. It's the there's certainly you can see either economic or political ways to avoid it, but that would be sort of my one pessimistic scenario relative to maintaining our open access order, which would, if we do maintain our open access order, I think eventually we do recover prosperity and we sort of maintain freedom. John Cochran. Thank you. Um, so we're gathered to, to celebrate the Magna Carta as the beginning of a uh, tumultuous 800 years towards the rule of law. We haven't really said wh why we like rule of law so much, which I thought I would start with a reflection on. Uh, the rule of law, of, of course, it's there to protect your, protect your wealth uh, and your prosperity, but I think even more importantly, it's there to protect your political freedom. Um, fundamentally, rule of law uh, means that the law will not be used for political advantage, uh, that you can speak out, you can support the wrong candidate, you can hold unpopular opinions, yet you can still run your business, you won't be sent to jail, the, the power of the legal system won't be used against you to coerce your political support for uh, people in power. Now, um, as, as, as Richard said briefly on the way out, God's in the details, or maybe the devil's in the details. Um, you know, Russia says they have the rule of law, they have, they have courts, 
when they take a dissident or a, or a rock group and throw them in jail, they, they have a trial and they're found guilty of hooliganism. What do you mean, no rule of law? Well, the rule of law is in the details. It's not in the appearances. It's in the details of how the laws are made and the elaborate rights, the rights to appeal, to see the evidence against you, to confront your accusers, and so on and so forth, which began in, in the uh, uh, Magna Carta and, and, of course, took hundreds of years to develop. As I uh, look out now, the threat that I see to the rule of law and to our consequent political as well as economic freedom comes from the regulatory state. Um, and in, in, by that I mean mostly regulation, some law, but the vast attempt of our government to control economics from the big, Dodd-Frank and Obamacare, down to the small, the uh, regulations against Uber and, and occupational licensing for hairdressers and so forth. This enterprise has vast power. It's uh, increasingly politicized. And uh, right now, it's, it's used already to silence opposition to the regulatory fiefdoms. Uh, what bank dares to speak out against the Dodd-Frank Act? What health insurer dares to speak out against Obamacare or the Health and Human Services Department, and increasingly against the administrations that, that uh, support them? Um, these are the barons of our era, and, and clearly already using uh, their power to, for their political support. But now it, I, th I think we see a trend that the larger political system has realized the uh, great power of this regulation to, to enforce uh, its political goals. Uh, lowest learner of the IRS is, is only the beginning. The system that seems to be emerging, that I fear is emerging, is, is a system of two-way capture. Uh, um, businesses uh, get... Uh, carved up into large uh, cart cartels of large businesses, protected from competition, yes, but not a cozy capture. Uh, they had better do what the, uh, what the uh, administration and the regulators want, or else uh, uh, criminal prosecutions and multi-billion dollar settlements await those who step out of line. Um, we're not there yet, um, but... Uh, this regulatory state has expanded dramatically. And as I look at the, its structure and the trend, uh, it seems to me more and more ripe for that kind of corporatist system and for the loss of our political freedoms uh, in the regulatory state. Now, uh, let me try to be a little specific. As, as we think about regulation, what are some of its features that are leading, that lead to this potential loss of political freedom? Uh, to, to the ability of the regulators uh, to demand our, our political support. Rules versus discretion. Uh, does the regulator uh, apply some rule, or uh, does, the, does the regulator have sort of the right to do whatever they think like? Uh, rules or laws like no unreasonable stuff are very different from, from laws like your house has to be back six feet from the property line. The latter may be silly, but at least you know what it is. The discretion is arbitrary and gives the regulator more power to demand your political support in, in return. Uh, is the law, is the regulation simple and precise or vague and enormously complex? See Dodd-Frank Act or, or Obamacare. Well, the vagueness and complexity, of course, gives more power to the regulator to, to, to do what they want with you if you step out of line. Is the rule knowable, uh, written down somewhere? <laughs> uh, is it knowable in plain English? 
Uh, or is it something uh, both complex, requiring fixers, requiring friends, usually people who just left the revolving door from the, uh, from the agency? Uh, or does, it, does its application involve ex post prosecutions uh, rather than, than ex ante knowable rules? If so, of course, uh, much better to just stay on the good terms with the regulators rather than read the rule book and know that you're okay. Are rules uh, enforced uh, commonly? I think all of us have a driver's license. That's a commonly enforced rule. Or arbitrarily, are they regulations that just about everybody's violating? And then every now and then somebody gets a uh, gets the Department of Justice on them about it. Obviously, the arbitrariness gives the regulator much more power to to demand your uh, your uh, political support. Do you have the right to discovery to see evidence calculations? Or is the regulatory, uh, is the regulatory thing done with, with the equivalent of secret evidence? Um, many of our regulations now, if, if you ask the EPA for approval, they do their thing and, and you, you basically don't have the right to see how they did it. Um, in fact, do you have to, is it a rule book or a request for permission? Is there a rule book you read and say, okay, this is what you do, or do you have to submit my plan and then the regulator blesses it as the APA has to uh, bless it? Obviously, the EPA, the FDA, giving their the the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau giving their blessing to their product, the, re, the, re, the requirement to get blessing ex ante makes it much more amenable to a political control. Do you have the right to appeal, uh, or, or is the regulator, legislator, judge, jury, and executioner all in one, as is the case in most of our regulations? How are the regulations made? Um, there are, of course, structures to keep. Uh, to keep the uh, uh, political administration away from the regulatory writing and decisions, but those political uh, those structures are weak to start with, and and falling apart in many ways. Uh, even the weak uh, legislative restrictions on what the regulations can do are increasingly ignored by our regulators as they just uh, write them. Um, is there is there uh, speed versus delay? <laughs> You know, one of the one of the increasing tricks of our regulators is simply to take years and years to make up their minds. And that alone uh, will will uh, will ruin a project um, from someone. And of course, you dare not speak out because they can just delay your other uh, applications uh, waiting for you. Um, the essential element of a new Magna Carta ought to be a right to a speedy decision. If it's not, if the decision isn't rendered in X time, you you have the right to proceed. And of course, how is, how is the law or regulation made? How is the, the consent of the governed, the representation of the governed in the creating of laws? The way regulatory agencies write laws, they have the right to just do whatever they want. Now, many of them have processes, there's comment periods and so forth. Uh, but in the end, they're just asking for your opinions, which they can uh, ignore if they feel like it. The laws uh, set up, law, of course, is in its problems in these areas as well. Uh, but in the 800 years with people uh, wary of tyranny since the Magna Carta, there were many procedures to stop these problems. Regulation at last has exploded since, uh, since the New Deal in a cultural environment with people trusting in arbitrary power and has much fewer of these limits and constraints and rights that gave us the rule of law and therefore the protection uh, for that law to be used for political reasons. Now, those are sort of general thoughts. Let me take, uh, without spending the whole afternoon on uh, how terrible regulation is, Ram, uh, I thank Lee for, uh, for providing half of that for me. You know, let's just take a couple of examples. Uh, 
Banks, uh, financial regulation isn't much in the papers, but that's where the money is, uh, as a famous bank robber once said. So a good place to look for this. And that, of course, embodies most of these problems. Just one example is these uh, stress tests that, um, for the moment, very honest people at the Fed are doing, but look at the structure. This isn't something I'm complaining is, is now already being used, uh, but it's just a structure ripe for the picking. Um, the, the regulators at the Fed uh, just make up whatever they want the banks to do. They don't tell the bank what it's going to be, and then they just you know, make up the, the rules each year uh, differently. Billions of dollars are on the line. Uh, how long will that last, uh, honestly? There's, there's a hundred, as far as discretion, hundreds of regulators are in each large bank and need to approve each deal as it comes. And, and of course, a good place to go after a regulator is to the bank to help them to persuade the regulators to sign off. It, it is discretion uh, at its utmost. Um, you've seen the big suits with billion-dollar settlements, and most of them on unknowables, uh, an example is the recent statistical discrimination uh, suits um, where several financial uh, companies were accused of statistical discrimination uh, based on the last names of people to whom people they lent money to had lent more money, essentially enshrining ethnic jokes into law. Ask yourself, did, did, did the Department of Justice give the statistical discrimination program to the companies ahead of time? So they could check if they're in, in, uh, in compliance with the law. Obviously not. This is as much of a bill of attainder as you could ask for, invented after the fact. Uh, and of course, anybody, anybody is, is open to that sort of thing. They know that they know the message. Uh, don't anger the people in charge. Um, the ACA, Obamacare, uh, you know, is, uh, any, any regulation where, where we need a, a 1,327 waivers, uh, is, is obviously ripe for you better go along to get along. Uh, the FDA, approval for drug devices. Um, uh, certainly, if you want approval, you better not talk too loud. The EPA, where to start. Uh, you have to ask permission for all of your projects. It takes forever, and you're not allowed to, change, to challenge the findings. The Internet, Title II rate regulation. Reasonable rates will be applied. Um, Get along with them. The LNLRB, the EEOC, waiting to take you to court. Uh, the last and, and most dangerous, E-Verify. It's part of most of the immigration deals. Uh, the United States federal government is, is going to have to give its prior approval for every person in this country to have a job. Gee, what could go wrong with that? Again, this is just a structure right for the picking, uh, a trend. Uh, I'm not accusing us of being there, but you can see that the, the structures that gave us rule of law and law are, are, in, are, are much weaker and in great danger in the regulatory state. Uh, the answer, of course, is we knew a, a new Magna Carta, a new Bill of Rights, <laughs> that uh, for, for the regulatory uh, state as, as it has evolved uh, and remains in danger for the legal state. Thank you, John. Uh, when we talked about this session beforehand, uh, prior to the conference, I summarized John's position, being a New England Patriots fan, as we're all Tom Brady now. Mm -hmm. So we're at the mercy of powerful administrators who, when we appeal, they are the, the uh, judge and jury, and we uh, have little recourse. Uh, Arnold, are, no one laughed at that really much. It was kind of it was supposed to be humor. Um, no, but but I would, the, the danger being, that's bad enough, but then the danger being and the, and the, and the, uh, the person deciding... Uh, you better get along with the person deciding. You better not speak out against the system. 
uh, you better vote for the party in power. Well, the commissioner can put you in jail in addition and and uh, and take your wages, uh, garnish your wages. Uh, Arnold, are you as worried as uh, Lee and John are about the regulatory state, either politically or economically? Well, I share their concerns about the practices and industries that they're talking about. Um, I will once again refer to North Wallace and Weingast, and they have, I think it's maybe the most intriguing idea, and I'm not sure I agree with it, which is that car, part of the characteristic of an open access order is that you get political and economic entrepreneurs that deal with problems. So, uh, you know, you can think of Alfred Kahn as uh, one of the, as an sort of an entrepreneur in deregulation in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s. You can think of Ronald Reagan as a political entrepreneur. And so, um, is, and what I, I find a bit challenging about believing that is that, uh, you know, the conventional view is that concentrated interests trump the general interest. You know, the, that's the, the public choice problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, classic public choice problem. And in effect, North Wallace and Weingast are saying that some political entrepreneur can come along and overcome that. Um, and I guess the, um, you know, so, so I'm not sure about that. I'm also, I just wonder if our political environment has come to the point where the rulers are just too smart for the ruled in the sense that people, um, you know, why, do, why, do, why does freedom decline? It's because people, I think, fear other people's liberty. I call it fear of others' liberty or fool. And uh, if, a, if the politicians can create enough fear in the public of other people's liberty, then they can get support for this regulatory state. And then you have this vicious cycle that John brings up that is, the regulators become so powerful that no one wants to challenge them because if you challenge them, they'll uh, they'll punish your business or whatever. Um, so have we reached the po- a point where uh, a political entrepreneur trying to change this system really couldn't succeed? That the uh, there's enough there's there's sufficient ability to manipulate people's fears to maintain a regulatory state. And, uh, you know, a political entrepreneur or economic entrepreneur can't overcome it. That's uh, my I'm going to push back against uh, Lee and John and let them defend themselves along with a different approach, which is uh, if you look at GDP over the last 75 years or so, it's, um, it's pretty steady growth. It's steady growth during, this is Ed Lemer's observation, not mine, previous guest on the program, uh, we have steady growth in high tax rate regimes, low tax rate regimes. During this time period, we've had a steady growth of government, which depresses me greatly, but it doesn't seem to have slowed down the economic engine. We have a growth in the regulatory state that you're talking about. doesn't seem to have slowed down the, the, regulatory, the uh, economic engine. You have to be arguing that there's some tipping point that we've now crossed, that we're about to cross, that we're going to, uh, we're going to get to. Uh, do you want to um, 
so defend your views? I think you're just wrong on the facts. So the growth wrong on the facts. Growth growth Sorry. has been <laughs> slowing down steadily. Well, it's slowing down since 2000. And no. We've had a mediocre recovery from the Great Recession. The question is: Is that due to the Increase in regulation, or is it something special? No, 1973, the great productivity mm-hmm. slowdown. A little bit of a rebound in the late 1980s, thanks to... Massive demographic changes over that time period may explain that. It's hard to know. Greatest explosion of technology innovation coming out of this part of the country. Lots of good things. It could be a lot better. <laughs> I agree. I mean, what I would say is, um, I, think the, I think the key statistic is that productivity growth is, you know, I mean, it's... A, 0.7% per year. Um, the historical average is 2.5% per year. So uh, if we had productivity growth that was a percentage point higher than that, I wouldn't be nearly as concerned as I am. But, uh, I mean, what distinguishes, as we all know here, that what distinguishes the U.S. from basically every other country is that we're the only society that's had persistent two centuries worth of almost constant productivity growth. Um, and now we have six years of where we're having productivity growth in which instead of business output per worker doubling every 28 years, it would double roughly every 100 years. Um, so I think that's the most depressing and important statistic that we're looking at right now. I want to tie this in with what Arnold said as well. Um, our long-term budget outlook depends vitally on growth. The fact that we seem to be heading into a one and a half to two percent new normal growth forever versus, say, four percent, that that's it. You want to pay back the debt, pay off Social Security, avoid a Greek crisis. That's the only thing that matters. So so the emergence of a, a slow growth new normal is is, I'd say, the greatest economic threat we face, um, not just the political things that I was uh, worried about. Yeah. The tough question is to know whether this is, a again, a temporary response to a really unpleasant change or whether it's part of the new normal. And I think it's mixed in with the challenge of measurement, right? We yeah, have some absolutely. some innovations that are not being monetized that most of us value tremendously, which may be causing us to underestimate the real prosperity that's going on, Arnold. Well, I I'm certainly uh, think it, it's very hard to draw inferences. Uh, I think Alan Blinder once wrote a book where he said it takes a long time to figure out a long-term trend. I think it was about... Uh, I think the, the title of the book was "Growing Together," and it was his. I think it was his audition to be uh, an, the chief economist for Clinton, which I guess he failed. Uh, but uh, he w- was, you know, championing economic growth for the reasons uh, that we we're talking about. Uh, but saying that it takes a long time to figure out what is happening. The um, I think that the sort of the the big headwinds that the we face in terms of economic growth probably have to do with human capital. That, you know, we just, you know, if you read Charles Murray on the right or Robert Putnam on the left, you have, you learn that there's a substantial portion of our population that just isn't really ready to function in, in our modern economy and may not get there. And the thing that we all beat up on on education, uh, you know, has no provable long-term differences uh, in outcomes uh, when you sort of do controlled experiment types things. So my only hope on that front really is uh, something that would might alarm some Hoover people, which is sort of more that we will... F- that there was a uh, cover story of the uh, MIT Technology Review that said 
we now ha- we can now engineer the human race, and so it may be that that what emerges over the next fifteen or twenty years is the ability to either medically or genetically or by implants uh, make it possible for people who are now now you know not great contributors to the economy to be very productive citizens. But that so those are those are the kind of scenarios. Cheerful that, thought. I'll yeah, get, I, I, I'll get to play for the Celtics, though, so that'll be good. Yeah, they, <laughs> my, I, my genetic handicaps will be overcome. Uh, anybody else want to react to that? I, I think we lost track of the, your question, which was regulation and growth. And yeah. we don't just need to look at the time series in the U.S. Look across the world. Go to Europe, where growth is much slower than the U.S., regulation is a lot more. Let's move on to Middle East, Africa. Most parts of the, of the world have highly regulated, where regulation is political states, and, and they grow miserably. Uh, your tipping point is, is right, too. You can have a lot of sclerotic, over, uh, over-regulated sectors as long as there is somewhere a sector of innovation. But, you know, recently, we just, you know, finance is now an, a sclerotic, over-regulated sector. Healthcare just became a sclerotic, over-regulated sector. Education. Uh, energy was. <laughs> education obviously was. The Internet is heading in that direction, you know, that, that now that it's Title III regulation and all of the tech companies are sending their lobbyists to Washington, uh, how long will that stay? So you got to keep that engine of innovation in there somewhere. And uh, there, that's the tipping point. But I, I just touch a bit. Go ahead. Lee and then Arnold. Go ahead. Just touch base on the earlier discussion about um, human capital and, uh, and schooling and regulation and schooling. Um, so there's a lawsuit in the state of California, um, which nine middle school kids brought. Um, it was basically about teacher tenure and teacher dismissal. Um, and the judge who heard the case, um, I, I don't have the, the quote, but it was something along the lines of the evidence is overwhelming and alarming um, on how bad some teachers are in terms of preparing children. And when you look at, um, so the OECD conducts a cross-country test of uh, mathematical proficiency, and the U.S. is, um, I think, 37th out of 46 uh, countries. And, um, I mean, within California, one out of four kids can't understand in a four-part multiple-choice test, they can understand that two over four and four over eight are the same number. Um, so, the, you know, so 25% of the population right there <laughs> um, is possibly doomed to be, you know, uh, underclass. And um, you look at the top performer in those tests in Shanghai, China, and Shanghai, China is two full-grade levels ahead of Massachusetts, which is the highest-performing U.S. state. Um, so when you think about future issues regarding prosperity and freedom and uh, human capital accumulation um, and how regulation of the education industry may be a very important impediment in this process. Arnold, are you going to react to that? I'm, I was going to react to what John said, which, and I'm just not sure. I mean, it, it could be that I'm not sure that the regulatory or deregulatory lever will be the main driver of growth, I just think that the the headwinds are, are stronger than that. Just things like uh, the fact that manufacturing is such a small share of the economy right now. I mean, f- fewer than for employment. S- yeah, fewer than Not six for per- output as much. Well, right? even for output, uh, it's education and healthcare are taking off, and but employment absolutely. You've got six, something like five percent of the labor force is production workers in manufacturing now. I mean, there's just 
There's, there's why, why do we care? I mean, the yeah. physiocrats said because, oh, agriculture's gone. So. I, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But I think when you're trying to measure productivity changes, you're now turning to industries where oh, we don't measure. know how to, we don't know how to measure productivity, and we don't. And if if we did, we're, I'm not sure we know how to create it. So let, let me play optimist here for a minute. Uh, Mark Andreessen, who's uh, if he's in town, is is within a short radius of this session. Uh, a former guest on Econ Talk wrote a, a provocative paper called "Software or Essay" called "Software is, e- is Eating the World" or "Is Going to Eat the World." And um, one argument says for these concerns that we're talking about, we're going to end run all these problems. Technology is a pro- common Silicon Valley view. I think that technologies can fix this. We got a lousy education system right now. My two sons teaching themselves Python. One's taking a Coursera course and one's taking an edX class. Uh, we're going to solve the True, Uber's under a lot of stress, but people like it. They'll beat the regulators just a question of time. Uber's going to have to gear up their lobbying effort, but they'll eventually learn how to play the game. We'll overcome it. Um, so that's the positive view. My view on the negative side, you may have more negatives. You may not even agree with my positive side, is this issue of, of how many people are going to be part of this revolution, that Arnold, that you're talking about. So, uh, you know, you do an end around the education system, not every kid's capable of, of being a part of that using the Internet in a way that will be, that'll be effective. Uh, entrenched interests are going to stop Uber from, from innovating in other, in other ways. What do you think of the possibilities for technology to trump some of these concerns? I mean, another example that I think about all the time is healthcare. It's a sclerotic industry, you point out, John. And we have somebody like uh, Elizabeth Holmes who's around the corner from here with a company called Theranos who's invented a much cheaper way to test blood and a much more pleasant way to test blood should be a no-brainer in a free market system. I think she'd, and her company would triumph very quickly, and instead it's a long slog. I think that, that she'll win, contrary to the, some of the public choice interests, because historically we have done very well. We haven't stopped innovation in America in general. Do you think we're getting to that point? Do you think these kind of solutions are not going to be able to triumph? There's a, there's a race. There's a race. <laughs> there's a race between the technological entrepreneurs, which there's great hope here for just doing an end run. Uh, Uber was a technological and political innovation. And the polit- you know, people have been trying to undo the taxi monopoly for years and years, but you can't do it bit by bit. You get all of a sudden 10,000 voting millennials happy with your service, and you have a political constitution that may be able to get around the taxi uh, in- lobby. We'll see. But there's a race. The race is on between the technical entrepreneurs, uh, the political entrepreneurs uh, in, on the side of freedom, but there's also political entrepreneurs on the other side who right now have a wonderful uh, opportunity ahead of them. There's the regulatory state. We can use that regulatory state to make sure that all the big businesses are, are supporting our campaign at the national partisan level. There's an opportunity for entrepreneurship right there, and that's going to that's, that's be the race between the opportunity for entrepreneurship and the freedom direction. Lee? So I would say that there's been a shift, um, you know, maybe at the country level, a shift towards centralization more recently, um, as opposed to maybe in the 1970s. Um, so... In the 70s and the 80s, and we, people often talk about Reagan being elected and then good things happening, but trucking deregulation, airline deregulation, telecommunications deregulation, oil deregulation, 
A lot of that started before Reagan. Yeah. Um, Alfred Kahn, the entrepreneur. And, uh, Arnold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Arnold talked about political entrepreneurs and economic entrepreneurs, and um, that seemed to be a time when there was a shift uh, towards um, decentralization uh, at that time. Um, and I just wonder whether, um, you know, among both political parties, whether the sentiments at that time to say, okay, um, we're going to deregulate oil. You had Reagan who wanted, uh, or decontrol it. You had Reagan who wanted to do it. Maybe George can weigh in on this. Uh, he was probably involved with it. Reagan wanted to do it right away. Um, Ted Kennedy, who was running against Carter, um, wanted to nationalize oil. Um, Carter was closer to Reagan. Um, Carter said, okay, we're going to decontrol it, but we'll take some modest, uh, plausible, reasonable steps. Um, I, I don't know if the, those sentiments were, the, the Carter-Reagan sentiments were the dominant ones at that time. I don't know if they would be dominant today. Well, I just want to mention uh, in 2006 when I interviewed Milton Friedman and I cheered the fact that no one was pushing for price controls at a time when the price of gasoline was going up. And his answer, and I viewed that as a triumph of economic education, and his answer was, no, it's because people are still alive who remember the 70s when they die off. Uh, we'll be back in trouble again. Uh, so it's a slightly more pessimistic view. I uh, just wanted to throw in a quote from uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's another optimistic out- entrepreneur. Very he says, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kurzweil, maybe, you know, I, I describe him as, as a head case to my students, but I, I talk about his, his stuff. But he, um, he says that regulations are like stones in a river. They don't stop the river. I mean, that's... That's his claim. Now, you know, he, he can say that he can do whatever he wants working for Google as trying to do artificial intelligence or whatever he's doing for them. He, he hasn't tried to start a business in India or Pakistan or Egypt or, you know, Russia uh, where regulation has become extremely politicized. I, I want to pick up on, on centralization as well because this is something that went back to our discussions uh, all, all day long. Um, one of the, the – we, we were comparing earlier in the day the uh, Western – System and in the 1400s and 1500s, with many different kings fighting it out and competing with each other, as opposed to the centralized uh, centralized uh, monarchies of, of China and, and the various empires. And notice that you know where did freedom and entrepreneurship and and growth uh, finally come from? Um, you know the famous story of the the Chinese emperor who had ocean going ships in the 1450s and said, "Well, we're deciding we're not doing this." And then one central mistake then means Portugal gets it and, and, and they don't. Um, the trend towards centralization of economic policy, however, it's a natural one in our political system. Oh, we'll have one system for everything, one set of national school standards, one set of regulations for this, that, and the other thing. But that is, uh, that of course is one of the things that's gonna, that makes it harder for entrepreneurs to come in and try competitive political or, uh, or economic systems, uh, economic ideas. We talked earlier today in an earlier session about um, the binding effect of constitutions, the binding effect of rules. And Richard Epstein, who is here, a longtime econ talk guest, uh, made the point that when you have people who are eager to thwart those rules, the rules don't get in their way. Bad people are not always stopped by good rules. And I, I think about that sometimes. I think about how the American culture used to be, I think, more favorable to free enterprise. Our culture, think about movies, television, our school system. I see a lot of trends away from uh, meritocracy, away from free enterprise, away from competition, 
away from the profit and loss system. Tragically, we're heading toward just the, uh, the profit system because the losses are socialized. But I see a lot of what made America tolerant of keeping the rules slipping away. So we could talk all we want about a new Magna Carta or what, adding economic provisions to the Constitution. If the body politic doesn't want them and the people in power aren't going to enforce them, they're a waste of time. Do you think this cultural trend that I'm worried about is real and is as important as I think it is? John? Um, yes, though, if you look around the world, America is, is one of the few reservoirs uh, of, uh, um, trying to find a good word, uh, thought that values freedom, both economic and political. Um, you know, Europe makes fun of us. They, they, they think of libertarian as sort of a strange religion that, uh, you know, only, only the United States has. Um, uh, but, uh, it, but you're exactly right. It, it has to be cultural. And I think, as Richard would say, it has to be deep in the bones. When um, the city of Menlo Park, I was following this recently, you know, thinks about why in a, in a uh, big real estate boom they have empty uh, shops all along the main street, uh, the idea that it's, that it's simply not the city's job to regulate what people do with their private property never occurred to anybody. And, you know, you can write all the rules you want. Uh, the idea that you have some freedom to do with your private property, what you want, has to come to the surface uh, uh, culturally as well. Lee? Um, <clears throat> so I, I would agree with your concerns. I might cast it uh, slightly differently. Um, not that culture may not be important, but um, I mean, economically, you have a growing number of individuals who, I mean, just face the dismal fact that the market price of their human capital is low, and it's probably not going to be getting any higher. Um, and earlier you talked about technology and can technology do an end run about, around some of these issues. Yeah, technology may actually work against some of these people with a very, very low human capital levels. Um, as that becomes a larger and larger group of people, um, they're going to be looking for answers that may not be associated with the free market economy. That's a good point. Arnold? Um, I think I share your concern. I would say maybe a little bit contrary to Lee that I think that the threat in our culture doesn't come from the poor people. It comes from the intellectual class. And... You know, in the 1930s, the intellectual class really rotted in Great Britain, and we saw the consequences of that. And sometimes it feels to me like we're going through a period like that in this country, and I don't know what's going to pull us out of it. I want to follow on because it's an extraordinarily important point. If, if you meet poor people in the U.S., they tend to be extraordinarily uh, entrepreneurial, um, especially poor immigrants to the U.S. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, they come, they love this country, and, and they see things. You're exactly right. It's, uh, but there is progress. I, I do think we need to be optimistic. On the national political stage in the 1970s, to say free market or libertarian was, was a joke. And even 10 years ago, uh, yeah, you know, most people, most People would think those words meant you're some sort of lunatic living on a on a compound with your guns in Texas or something of the sort. Uh, and but these ideas are, you know, there's actually presidential candidates that call themselves libertarian. Um, they may not win, but at least it's a respected, uh, a res you know, the defense of freedom in the U.S. economic freedom is uh, respected. Um, once you get outside of the Ivy Leagues. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I would um, <clears throat> I would quote James Buchanan, who I heard say that uh, when asked whether he was an optimist or pessimist, he said, when I look to the future, I'm a, I'm a pessimist because there's all these trends that make me nervous. But when I look to the past, I'm an optimist because I think about what must it have been like to be alive in 1937, 38, and thinking, what's the future of the United States? Well, we've got, the, we've got a world war about to explode that everybody was aware of. We have the government intervening in unprecedented ways. And yet somehow that open access order that, that Arnold's referring to came, uh, something happened. There was something of a swing back. But uh, so that's the most optimistic I can be. My guests today have been Arnold Kling, Leo Haney, and John Cochran. I want to thank the Hoover Institution for hosting us. And I look forward to a very, very prosperous 800 years of the future, despite the seeming pessimism of this conversation. <laughs> this is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.